Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. There are certain men that have gone down in the pages of history as some of the greatest military leaders the world has ever known. Now one such man would be Napoleon. Even though he lived back in the 1700s, and the early 1800s, his strategies, they're still studied to this day all over the world in military academies all over the world. And one man back in that day in his army actually understood how great of a leader he was. And this man, he dedicated his life to following Napoleon and serving him. This man so dedicated to, was so dedicated to serving Napoleon that when he was wounded in battle, it became obvious that he would soon die from this wound. And as the last struggle for life came, this man was laying there, dying in his tent. And he asked if he could see Napoleon one last time. Well, Napoleon came. And this man had elevated Napoleon in his mind so much that he actually thought Napoleon was literally capable of anything. And so he began to beg. He was dying, and he absolutely knew it, but he began to beg. He begged Napoleon to save his life. But this powerful, powerful man of war knew it was absolutely impossible. And so Napoleon, in his own sadness, he just shook his head. And he turned away. As the dying man felt the cold hand of death come upon him, as he began to drift slowly, slowly from this world to his everlasting doom, he was heard calling out in his final moments, Save me, Napoleon. Save me, Napoleon. Save me. In that hour of death, this soldier discovered the cold hard truth that even this great, great military man, he could not give him his life. Now as we turn to the pages of Acts chapter 7 this morning, we recognize that a central part of Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin was that neither Abraham, Joseph, nor even Moses could save them. Only the one. Only the one that they foretold would come was capable of giving life. Christ alone would be the sacrifice for their sins. Only Jesus Christ could save them. Their positions of power, prestige, and worldly influence, it didn't matter. Because before the living Christ, and before the coming reality of death, they were left powerless. It is Jesus Christ alone who saves. And they had rejected him, just like they had rejected the men that God had sent to them before. Now, if you remember from our previous studies, the last verse of chapter 6, it taught us that all the focus, all the attention, all the eyes were now on Stephen. 
All eyes look to him to see his response to the charges that were against him. It was the responsibility of the high priest to make sure that the accused had the opportunity to respond to the charges that were brought against him. And that's what we have in verse 1. Notice in your Bibles, if you would, he said to Stephen, this is the high priest, are these things so? Let me translate for you. How do you plead? Guilty or innocent? Now, before we walk through Stephen's long response, hear me on this point because you need to get this. The key to chapter 7 is understanding that what Stephen was doing was simply point by point reviewing the pattern of the Jewish people over their history. And in doing this, what he's actually doing is turning it right back on the Sanhedrin. He's turning it back on them. Methodically, systematically, point by point, all the way through the history of the Jews. All throughout, he subtly answers their question all throughout. Stephen is moving the conversation, if you will, in a certain direction until finally at the end, he builds it up, he brings it home, he drives home his point, he brings it right back to the men that were accusing him. Skip ahead to verse 51 in your Bible, if you would. I want you to see this. Because everything in chapter 7 is leading to what he's about to tell them, starting in verse 51. Notice what he said. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. These are not soft words. Notice. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not prosecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Strong words indeed. Pride had led the Jewish people to be on the wrong side of things. God's chosen people now opposed God himself. And Stephen was really using the past history of Israel to point to the present situation in the book of Acts. He was telling these men, if you will, that the past history of rejection, it actually paints a picture. It foreshadows the ultimate rejection of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. You see, Stephen was trying to get these men to understand that the laws of Moses and the temple worship that they so focused on, it actually pointed to something else. It all pointed to who? Jesus Christ. But as we march forward through chapter 7, I want you to notice what we don't see. It's an argument from silence, if you will, but notice what we do not see in chapter 7. There's absolutely no hint that Stephen was focused on being released. You don't see that. There's no hint that Stephen was focused on making sure that he was found innocent before the Sanhedrin. See, I think Stephen knew something. I think he knew that he was a marked man. He knew about the men that he was standing before. And I think they knew and he knew that they were determined to kill him. And so he just sort of puts it all out on the line here for him. Giving these men and us, thankfully for us, a beautiful picture of what it means to walk by faith. So take a look with me now in your Bibles, if you would, back to verse 2. Notice starting in verse 2 in Acts 7. 
And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Notice how he starts. Brethren and fathers. Stephen showed these men respect. And then he went directly to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. A very important covenant that we will study more as we go in the coming weeks. But I love how he starts out. The God of glory. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Stephen began with Abraham. Because this is where their entire faith as a nation began. It began with Abraham. Now remember before we go through this, the charges against Stephen involved the temple and the laws of Moses. Everything that Stephen is about to remind them of with Abraham was years before the Mosaic laws and centuries before the temple would be built. Stephen was trying to show these men that God wasn't limited to the rules that the Sanhedrin had tried to put on the people. God was moving. God had worked centuries before their man-made rules ever came around. And he did it through who? Abraham. Stephen tells us that at first, Abraham was in Mesopotamia, the land of the Chaldeans, Ur of the Chaldeans. God revealed himself to Abraham, even though Abraham was living in a pagan, pagan Gentile land. You see, so the message here to the Sanhedrin was that, yes, absolutely, God could and does work outside of the borders of the land of Israel. When God called Abraham, Abraham went. He left his home. He left his friends. Everything he knew to go to a foreign land. And that continues to be, doesn't it, for each and every one of us, a powerful lesson for each of us, that when God moves, you must be willing to follow by faith, just like Abraham. Abraham responded by faith. Notice at the end of verse 3, that Abraham was told to go to a land that the Lord would show him. Go to a place I will show you. You know, I've actually just recently been down this road, stepping out of one ministry and not knowing for seven months where God would have us serve before we came here. God is taking some of you down that road right now, not giving the answers to your prayers just yet, waiting to show you the direction that you're looking for. Abraham, what did he do? He stepped out in faith. And we, we need to follow that example, trusting that God is good and his plan is perfect. Why? For his glory. Verse 4 in your text again, notice. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. 
Then Abraham's father died. Genesis 11 tells us it happened there in Haran. Notice what our text says in verse 4. He, speaking of God, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. You see, God was having Abraham move to the land of Canaan. The land south of the route that he took down here to the south, this is all desert. So either way, he was following along the rivers. And why would that become important? Well, when you're traveling with servants and when you're traveling with animals, Abraham followed along the waters of the Euphrates River. Now we know that Abraham made it to Canaan. Around 2090 B.C., roughly 4,000 years ago. So stick with Stephen in the text on this. The Sanhedrin was condemning the message of the Christians because the followers of Christ were teaching that the worship at the temple, it was no longer required. You don't have to come here to the temple anymore. Remember the words of Jesus. He said this too. He said in John 4 to the woman at the well that the time was coming when the people would no longer worship in Jerusalem. God can be worshipped anywhere and at any time. And so Stephen, he responds to them in the text. He says, think about Abraham. God took Abraham from among the pagans. God brought him to Haran. And then God brought him to the land that would become their own. And so, yes, God can absolutely work outside of the boundaries of Israel. Abraham was actually all the proof that they ever needed. But what was Stephen saying in verse 5? Look again with me. God promised three things. In Genesis 12, to bless the nations of the earth through him, to make him a great nation, and then land for the nation of Israel. This is the very foundation. This is the Abrahamic covenant right here. These will all be perfectly fulfilled one day in the coming kingdom of Christ. When Israel receives the full boundaries of her land. Now, Abraham, he didn't see it. Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of this. No inheritance, the text tells us, in the land of the Jews. Not even enough to set his foot on. And even though God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, Abraham, in his old age, he what? He had no child. God was looking for him to walk by faith. There used to be a guy in Los Angeles that was called the human fly. Now this guy, he would climb up the sides of buildings without any climbing gear at all. A little bit of a show-off, if you will. He thought he was something special. No climbing gear. I'm good. I don't need it. One Friday afternoon, he proved himself wrong. A crowd gathered to watch him climb, and he made it up 20 stories without any climbing gear at all, and he had 10 more to go. And then suddenly he kind of stopped moving up there. It looked like he was looking for something to hold on to. And slowly the people could watch his right hand moving to the side of the building as if he was trying to grab onto something. And then all of a sudden he lost his footing and fell to his death. Now when they pried open his right hand after he fell, they found that he was actually grabbing on to a cobweb. A cobweb. You see, in the bright sunlight, it looked like something that it wasn't. 
He mistook it for something that he could grab onto, that he could hold onto, but it really wasn't anything of substance. And so then he tragically fell to his death. People do this. People do this all the time with man-made religion. Holding on to something that they believe will hold them up before God. Only to find out that it was nothing but the dusty cobwebs of man-made religion. And this is really what Stephen was fighting against. These men were clinging to cobwebs instead of clinging on to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And this is the message that Stephen is giving to them. Notice with me how he continues to shake them up, starting with verse 6 in your text. Notice in your Bibles. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Now let's follow the line of thinking of Stephen here. Abraham, he dwelt in this foreign land. And then his descendants, they would be in bondage for 400 years. Now Genesis 15, it actually makes this clear. This is the Lord speaking to Abraham. Notice. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Think of the faith. I mean, stop and consider the faith at this point for Abraham. Stop and think what God was actually telling Abraham. It's not like he had a written Bible or a church to go to or some believers to hang out with. And then all of a sudden, one day he's told that his descendants would inherit the land, but he still had zero offspring. None. The Lord told him that his descendants would live in a strange land. For hundreds of years they would be in bondage. To the people of a foreign nation. Now this is something that Abraham, he never even saw it in his lifetime. He never saw the fulfillment of this. And yet we read in Genesis 15 that when the Lord told him his descendants would number like the stars, he believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Hear me on this. Abraham, his faith rested on the promise of God and his faith rested on the Lord himself. But the heart of this passage, the heart of this message in Acts is that Stephen was trying to drive home a point. He was driving home the truth that at the very beginning of the Jewish nation, for over 400 years, the chosen people of God were not even dwelling in the promised land. The people of God were persecuted and suffered. They suffered something terrible at the hands of the Egyptians. But God was still working, wasn't he? God was absolutely still working. This was a strong rebuke to the Jewish men of religion who believed that the worship of God was limited to what they approved of. You know, in the book of Genesis, God was demonstrating to the world that despite the hundreds and hundreds of years that went by, that seemed like such an eternity for mankind, despite the situation looking so desperate for the Jewish people time and time again, he would judge the nation of Egypt. 
He would demonstrate his power to all. And his chosen people would be delivered to the land that God had promised. From the human point of view, it looked like Pharaoh was in control. It looked like all the power belonged to him. But God wasn't impressed by that, was he? God was not impressed at all. The armies of this great king, the power of this great nation... The stubbornness and self-determination of Pharaoh could not stop God from keeping his promise to Abraham. Now with the second half of verse 7 in your text, we learn that the goal of God's promise to Abraham, it wasn't just the land. It's not just about land. But it was to give his people the freedom to give true worship to the living God. And there it is. That's the important part, isn't it? And that is the point that needed to be heard by the Sanhedrin. For 400 years, the people were not even in the land. And yet still, during that entire time, God could be worshipped. Take a look at verse 8 in your Bibles. Stephen uses this as a transition to his next point. Verse 8. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now the text is moving forward pretty fast. It shows us that from the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, it was all according to God's plan. Turn over to Genesis 17, if you would. As you turn, keep in mind that Ishmael had already been born. In verse 1 of Genesis 17, we learn that at this point, Abram was 99 years old. This is the chapter where the Lord where the Lord changes his name to Abraham. Starting in verse 9. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Now, skip down a couple of verses, if you would, to verse 15. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but what? Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant that God had made with his people. The covenant of the circumcision came before the birth of of Isaac, demonstrating to every man that little by little God was beginning to unfold his plan in the affairs of mankind. Let's skip ahead, if you would, to Genesis 21. Genesis 21. In the 21st chapter, we now see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham of a son. So pick up the text with verse 1. 
And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah, as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Part of the great history of Israel, in the birth of a nation, God continued to do what should have been impossible, really, if you think about it. It should have been impossible according to the standards of men, demonstrating for everyone to witness then and now that indeed the God of heaven was at work. And what was there at that time? There was no temple, was there? And there was even no Mosaic law back then when Abraham walked The essential faith of the fathers was passed down from generation to generation in simple obedience to the word of God. The law and the temple, both, they both had a very important function in the life of Israel. They absolutely do. But the point that Stephen's making time and time again is that the patriarchs, oh, they did just fine without them because the substance of the faith, it's Christ. The substance of the faith is Christ. And this is what the Jews were missing. So back in our passage in Acts now, chapter 7, Stephen, he moves quickly from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then the 12 patriarchs, which brings up his next example. Let's pick it up with verse 9. In verse 9 we see, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now Stephen is really walking us through the book of Genesis. But here's what I love about this. Stephen knew the word of God, didn't he? Stephen knew the word of God. I don't know if many of us could walk people through the book of Genesis, like an overview of that, without turning to the written word of God ourselves. He knew the word of God, and when called to stand before the lost and give an answer for his faith, he was ready. He was ready. He was capable, because the word of God had clearly been ingrained upon his heart first. And I would encourage us as believers, we, we need to work on this. You know, at times, Joseph, he did suffer. He did suffer in Egypt. At times, he went through hardship. And Stephen was showing us that God was with Joseph. God was faithful the entire time, even though it didn't look like it. God fulfilled his promises through Joseph to deliver the people of promise from the famine that was in the land. And you guys remember the story, don't you? Joseph's brothers, they were moved with jealousy. And Genesis, again, it speaks to this. Make your way back if you can. Notice Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was a son of his old age. 
Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Follow this closely. I think Stephen is making a a very important point here. As I study this, the more convinced I become is that Stephen was actually drawing a comparison between the rejection and the hatred of the brothers of Joseph that they had for Joseph, and the rejection that the Jews had for Jesus Christ. He's drawing some comparisons here. Joseph's brothers, they saw that their father loved Joseph more than them. The Jewish council saw that the people favored the teachings of Christ more than they favored the teachings of the Jewish men of religion. And the reaction by Joseph's brothers was hatred, and so was the reaction of the Jewish rulers with Christ. And then down in verse 5, we see that Joseph, Joseph had a dream, which we learn that the dream, it came from God. God was at work in the life of Joseph. But notice the reaction at the end of verse 5. And they hated him even more. After they heard the dream, take a look at the reaction with me down in verse 8. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph had another dream and it doesn't get better, does it? He had another dream. And again, look at the reaction in verse 11. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The brothers conspired. They conspired to kill Joseph. They threw him into a pit. They sold him to men that took him off to Egypt. On your way back to the book of Acts, let's stop by the Gospel of Matthew, if you would. Look to Matthew 27, and we'll notice what took place with Jesus Christ before Pilate. Matthew 27, and it's up on the screen. Matthew 27, starting in verse 15. Watch what the text says. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Now who handed him over? Because of envy. Well, it's there in the text. It's back up in verse 12. It was the chief priests again. It was the elders again. You see, the point is this. The sons of Jacob, they united to get rid of Joseph. And the children of Israel had united to get rid of Jesus. And they were now about to get rid of the messenger of the living Christ. And so let's put this together, heading back now to Acts. Notice with me some of the simple statements that Stephen made about Joseph at the end of our text. In verse 9, God was with Joseph. In verse 10, God delivered Joseph from his troubles. Hated and rejected by his brothers, sold for the price of a slave. His own brothers sold him for the price of a slave. Think of that. Handed over to the Gentiles. And when in Egypt, Joseph was accused of sins. Remember that he didn't even commit and he suffered for the sins of another person. Joseph arose from that prison, though, and he ruled over all the land of Egypt and ruled over Pharaoh's house, all because God had his hand on Joseph's life. 
And this is what Stephen wanted the Sanhedrin to remember. That God was working. God was absolutely working. Giving Joseph wisdom and favor in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God was with Joseph. And so in the end, he was raised up to rule over the land. God used Joseph to deliver his people from the famine in the land. And in the same manner, the man that they hated like no other... The man that they had crucified, God the Son, now was exalted at the right hand of the Father. And God the Father, he used Christ to deliver his people, not just from a famine, but to deliver them to salvation for every person that will believe in him. Stephen had a message for the Sanhedrin. He was there to tell them that God's people... The Hebrew people, they had a long, long history of persecuting and rejecting the men that God was working through. And the Hebrew people continued to learn the hard way that God's plan, God's plan will be accomplished. And to resist, it just means you're kicking against the goads. You will find yourself fighting against God. During World War II, Jewish inmates of Yanov labor camp in occupied Poland. They defied their Nazi guards. They secretly held all their worship services inside of the darkened barracks that they had. And how they got their scrolls in is, here's what they did. They cut the scrolls up into little sections. And then they bound the pieces of parchment around their bodies, underneath their clothes, to sneak it in. And then they just walked right on through the front gate of the labor camp. They hid fragments wherever they could, beneath the floorboards in their barracks, inside hollow bedposts. Got to remember that trick. Inside hollow bedposts, even in a camp cemetery. After the labor camp was liberated in 1945, one survivor, he actually gathered up all of the fragments, all of the scattered pieces that they had. And he took them and painstakingly, he put them together in a scroll, a single scroll known today as the Yanov Torah. Three decades later, the Torah, its parchment warped and water-stained, its patchwork of sheets kind of held together roughly by fraying threads, it found its way to Los Angeles. And that's actually the picture there of the actual scroll that you see on the screen. Think with me, though, of the dedication to the Word of God. Would you risk your life for the Bible, to keep a copy of the Bible, even if it was in fragments, even if it was hidden in your bedpost, even if it was hidden underneath your floor, even if it was in a cemetery? Would you do it? And how much more? How much more we should hide the Word of God in our hearts so that we might not sin against God? Consider Abraham as we close. It is at this crossroads, this beautiful crossroads of his life, that Abraham's faith can be seen. That his trust in God's word can be seen. You know, it was so much different for the patriarchs, wasn't it? Without the completed canon of the written word of God. But yet Stephen made it known that when God spoke, when God spoke to him, when God called, Abraham obeyed. Listen to Genesis Chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
by faith. He dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham, he may have doubted, but yet he went. He may have argued, but yet he went. He may have wondered and wondered and wondered about the future, but still he obeyed. He still went. Abraham demonstrated us for us all a man living out his faith, a man holding on to the promises of God. When we are called to step out and serve, it is at those times that we will be precisely, exactly where Abraham was 4,000 years ago. And then we'll be deciding for ourselves, will you believe God? Will you trust God? Will you hold on to his word of truth, even though you don't know what the future brings? So I'd like to encourage you this morning to embrace the call of God on your life. Trust the living God as he directs your path one step at a time. Return to the Word is a listener-supported ministry. And truthfully, it is people like you, those who listen each week, that God uses to help us meet the expense of a ministry dedicated to reaching people for the gospel of Christ and the teaching of God's Word. And so I want to take a moment to thank those that support the work, even those that give $5 a month or $10 a month, because those smaller donations, they add up. And we thank you, because it keeps the programs free of charge so that others may learn of God's amazing grace. If you'd like to help us out, you can find out more at returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.